Welcome to the third episode of Kabbalistic Mystic, the podcast for the Western seeker where we explore the ancient Hebrew wisdom and the tree of life as the last spiritual heritage of the West. I'm Ovadia Batat, your host. In this episode, we'll talk about the concept of enlightenment and awakening. What does it mean to be enlightened or awakened? Are these finite states of consciousness that can be described and measured? This person is awakened, this one's not. Or is it relative, an ongoing process? In Hebrew mysticism, the term enlightenment has a very specific meaning. Establishing common terminology around this topic will help us all to be on the same page, at least in the sphere of this podcast series. A couple of logistics before we start. First, I want to remind you, you can find the show notes on KabbalisticMystic.com. Just click podcast at the top and go to this episode. If there's any visual aids needed for the episode, that's where you're going to be able to find them. You'll also be able to find links to books, sources, references, or even music I play, as well as links to Facebook and Twitter and all the good stuff. So check them out. And one last thing today, I want to remind you that questions are welcome and that no question is irrelevant. If I mention a term that you don't understand or if you have a particular question about the subject matter or anything else about um, these topics that we talk about, please do ask. Questions will help me build new episodes and uh, questions of generic nature will be answered on the show. Others I will answer directly, so keep them coming. All right, let's start. to touch this subject with a 10-foot pole. So I decided to do a whole episode about it. And the reason it's so tricky is because the very nature of the attempt to define enlightenment or awakening is problematic. And that's for three reasons. And the first reason is that everyone's experience is different. We walk different paths. We have different karmas to resolve. We have different lessons to learn. We have different purpose in life. Most importantly, we experience things differently. Enlightenment is awakening is a reflection of a particular shift of consciousness. That is, our conscious perception of reality has changed. And so the experience will be different based on our originating state of consciousness. It's like two people going outside a cold day. One was sitting at a desk for three hours and one just came out of a hot sauna. The first one will be cold. The second one will find the weather refreshing, right? A state of consciousness is like a physical sensation. It's always subjective. So that can never be measured. It's like comparing people's tolerance for pain. We can match the level of infliction which causes pain across our study, but we can never really inflict the same amount of pain on two different people. That's impossible since different people have different tolerance and reaction to the pain, which varies based on memory, emotional trauma, current state of mind, you name it. They experience it subjectively. The same goes for spiritual experiences. They never, they're never the same for two different people. The second challenge with this question is, how do you define that which cannot be described with words? What you can't. How do you explain to a blind man what a blossoming fields of poppies look like? You can't. 
You can describe the feelings you experience when you're looking at it or the conditions that are creating the experience. The sun is shining, the bees are humming, the poppies are red, it looks like a big Christmas blanket, right? But at the end of the day, one cannot comprehend what one has never experienced. This is because, again, consciousness is subjective. A male doctor who delivered thousands and thousands of babies will never know what it's like to give birth, in his current lifetime anyway. And so we attempt to describe that which is indescribable. Furthermore, since the phenomena of enlightenment is so rare amongst humans, we lack the vocabulary to describe it. Language is a reflection of the collective state of consciousness of its peoples. And the collective state of consciousness is unawakened at this point in human history. And so we must use the words used by the poets and sages. That's pretty much as close as we're going to get. The third reason why it's difficult to define enlightenment is that by discussing enlightenment, we're cultivating a desire for it. And desire, my friends, is what we need to eliminate in order to attain awakening and enlightenment. This is one of the four noble truths of Buddhism. Desire is the source of all suffering, and we must let go of it to become one with the moment. And so by the very nature of the attempt to define enlightenment, we're seeking understanding for a state of consciousness we're yet to experience. Why does it matter what is enlightenment, a wise man would say? Focus on the present moment. When enlightenment comes, you'll know what it is. True. I can't argue with that. But I'm not a Buddhist, and this podcast is about a tree of life, which is, among many other things, a map for human conscious evolution on the path to enlightenment. And enlightenment in Hebrew wisdom is very specific and very much a defined concept, not the experience itself that would still be subjective and cannot be described, but the parameters and conditions leading to it, as well as the steps one must go through in order to attain it, can be talked about. In fact, Hebrew wisdom tells us that there are seven distinct stages of enlightenment, represented by the last seven letter of the Hebrew alphabet and the last seven cards of the Tarot Major Arcana. Here's an interesting fact. The first stage of enlightenment is always, drumroll, the devil. That is to say, desire, depicted by the letter Ein, which is the devil card in tarot. And in Hebrew, there's an expression, Ein Ara, which means an evil eye. And this is the source of the expression, the evil eye. The evil eye, the evil Ein, the devil. I'm sure that we'll dedicate a whole episode and probably much more to this very stage of enlightenment, considering most of us are stuck in it, and since, since it seems to be plaguing our Western society. But since we are on this topic, I'll take the time to say that we just touched upon the reason why I love the Tree of Life so much. It's very different than Eastern methodology in the sense that instead of blaming desire for our suffering, it tells us that desire has a very important role. In fact, without it, we'll never evolve. Desire in Kabbalah as the first step of enlightenment, or in other words, instead of saying desire, let's say the seeking of pleasure is the feminine essence of man. 
it is critical that we listen to it and use our discernment as to whether to follow it and to what extent. And for me, as a Westerner, this works much better. Even when I was immersed in yoga and Eastern practices, the requirement to eliminate desire was problematic and did not resonate with me. I got the concept and I saw how desire creates my suffering. But the distance between knowing this intellectually and actually finding a way to eliminate it was like the distance between looking at the moon and walking on it. There's a story about the Dalai Lama visiting here in America and someone asking him a question, how do you deal with self-loathing? And the Dalai Lama had a puzzled look on his face and asked, why would someone hate themselves? Easterners grow up in a very different reality than us in the West. Imagine growing up in an environment where it is common knowledge that this is just one of your lives. That death is not permanent, that we're all spiritual beings, and that impermanence is the only permanence. It would give you a whole new look on life, wouldn't it? The Eastern teaching would make much more sense, but this is not the state of consciousness we embody here in the West. This is not the common understanding, the common knowledge, the common reality, the common psychological, psycho-spiritual understanding on which we grow and being raised. Not because we're less than, not because we're broken as a society. Notice the judgment, if you have some. But because we're different. Our minds are just not our own. They are an evolution and a product of society's collective mind. We are Westerners, and the values, history, collective karma of our peoples is planted and seeded within the roots of our mind. A loving, all-embracing self-acceptance of our shadow is just as important on the path of illumination as the dissolution of the ego. This is who we are. We're not raised in the East. We're raised among competitiveness in the very materialistic and intellectual society. And this fact has a very important part in our evolution in and in the evolution of the world as a whole. There is a recognition in Buddhism that it's lacking tools for the dissolution of the ego. As such, we need different tools to develop our spirituality here in the West. One of these tools is the Tree of Life in the ancient Hebrew letters. You might say it's the Western version of the Eightfold Path in Buddhism. It works for me because it understands me. It judges me not. It carries tools in its belly which can help me purify my desire, reorient my competitive nature, diffuse my need for material belongings while having material belongings, and teach me how to fall in love with myself. Let's go back to the concept of enlightenment. First, let's clarify the term in its most common use today. And within the consciousness movement, enlightenment is a relative term. Like saying older, older than who? You might be older than somebody else, but somebody else is older than you are. It's a relative term. Enlightenment is simply a description of how much light we embody. The seeker who is on the path for self-discovery is more enlightened today than he was yesterday. That is, he or she has expanded their consciousness through experience and have learned more about themselves. The more you know yourself, 
the more you realize that you contain all emotions, capable of all reactions, embody all experiences. We judge only what we do not know experientially. We look at someone who's a drug addict and we judge them. Only until we develop our own addiction. And even then we find a way to say, ah, but I'm different somehow because blah, 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 right? We look at someone who is homeless and assume they have made many bad choices until we fall into the perfect storm and come close to similar circumstances. What Once that happens, compassion takes the place of judgment. That's all we have left. Understanding, acceptance, compassion. In other words, love. That's who we really are. Once we know ourselves fully, we judge not. We only love. For we contain within us the entire range of human consciousness. Each and every one of us is capable of the most noble act, the bravest deed, and the most hideous crime possible. All that needs to change is circumstances and our state of consciousness. Understanding that, accepting that, is the only real way to ensure that we can truly choose our response at any given moment. And so in the context of modern use, enlightenment is the constant seeking of the light, the constant pursuit of consciousness expansion, allowing us to embody as much light as possible, allowing as much light to pass through us without blocking it with fear, judgment, anger, or any other egoic response. It is about knowing ourselves. Enlightened beings are those who truly learn how to love others as well as themselves, two sides of the exact same coin. We spoke in the first and second episodes about the fact that all matter is made out of light. It experienced by our consciousness to be a vast ocean of physical phenomena because of the differences in, in its state of vibration, that is, its density. The denser the light, the heavier the material. Enlightenment literally means that we have raised the vibration of the light particles from which we are made, not figuratively, literally, to a higher state of vibration. We do that by allowing more light to pass through us. And we allow more light to pass through us by learning to embody more states of consciousness, expanding the range of states with which we feel love and compassion to ourselves and others versus other emotions. It's done only through experience. That's why illuminated beings are usually ones who suffered much, like Mother Teresa, Nelson Mandela, Gandhi. They are or were loving because they've experienced suffering and cultivated compassion. The more we learn to love ourselves, the more we love others. The more we love others, the less light is filtered through us and the more light we project outward. Those of us who have been around a guru, a master, a saint, uh, take for example Amma, the Indian woman who goes around the world and hugs people, have seen that these people radiate some kind of an unexplained vibration, an unseen light that just makes you want to be around them. Enlightenment, then, is the gradual embodiment of light as the essence of who we are and allowing ourselves to become vessels for it to pass through us unfiltered as much as possible. And that is done through gradual experience and expansion of our own consciousness.
house of my heart, I cried in the middle of the night. Love said, it is I, but what are all these images that fill your house? I said, they are the reflection of your beautiful face. Love asked, but what is this image? Full of pain. I said, it is me lost in the sorrows of life and showed love my soul full of wounds. Love offered me one end of a thread and said, take it so I can pull you back, but do not break the delicate string. I reached towards it, but love struck my hand. I asked, why the harshness? Love said, to remind you that whoever comes to love's holy space, proud and full of himself, will be sent away. Look at love with the eyes of your heart. That was the poet Rumi talking about the ego personality. And this leads us to yet another state of illumination, widely referred to as awakening. Awakening is very often confused with enlightenment. It's a state in which we have grasped that there is no such thing as the self. We have detached from the, the, the identification with matter. In that particular state, the ego has dissolved. We've become one with all that exists. Here is Eckhart Tolle, who describes what it's like. After the kind of shift in consciousness happened, all I knew was that from one day to the next, suddenly everything was peaceful. All sense perceptions happened within a very peaceful field. And I realized much later that the reason why there was that peace was that my thought processes had become reduced by about 80%. And since then and up to now, the way in which I perceive things, the world, nature, people, is still very much through stillness. In other words, while I perceive there isn't a lot of mind activity that comments on what I'm perceiving. There isn't a lot of labeling of sense perceptions. They're just there. So with this comes the wonderful realization there is a vast realm of consciousness beyond thought. Thought is a tiny manifestation of a vast consciousness that is your essence. And most people only know that tiny manifestation. It's not separate because Consciousness embraces everything, is everything. Thought is only a particular form that consciousness takes. So not to be trapped in that anymore, that tiny manifestation of consciousness, not that it will never operate again, no. It can and does still operate, but you're no longer trapped in it, so it doesn't give you your sense of self anymore. It's not there in thought and all the emotions that accompany thought, it's not there where you're seeking your identity or to enhance your identity through adding more content to your mind. And so when that stops, oh, suddenly you realize that you can simply be present here, fully awake, alert, 
and even know, but not know through concepts or labels, you just, you know, without needing words. So there is a deeper knowing that can operate and does operate in that state, in which thought activity can still happen when it's needed. In fact, thought then becomes actually quite inspired, insights, realizations suddenly, because they come out of that field of no thought. When thought becomes trapped in itself, you go round and round and round, and it's a continuous circle of largely useless and, to a large extent, destructive thinking. That was Eckhart Tolle speaking about awakening. So we see that there's a state of consciousness that is very different than what we know our lives to be. You might say that it's an altered state of consciousness, but in reality it's closer to our true essence. So it's not really altered state of consciousness, but rather the state of consciousness. It is a mental state. The mind is no longer in control, ruling our lives with endless chatter. Instead, it is used as a tool for the intellect. We choose when to use it. Otherwise, it's quiet, allowing us to focus our attention on the present moment. In that particular state, we lose our identification with matter. We understand that we are not defined and confined by the limitations of our physical body. Now, why is it so hard to attain this state of consciousness, this mental state? Some of us can quiet the mind when we do something else, like arts, sports. When I do this podcast, that's all I do. I'm very present. But when it comes to just sitting, it proves to be a very steep mountain to climb. When we pay attention, we notice that our thoughts are mostly doing one of two things. We're either lamenting on the past synthesizing previous experiences to discern what is desired and what's not, or we're in the future projecting a reality yet to exist, either out of desire and very often out of fear, out of anxiety. So we think about what we want to achieve and what we want to avoid. In other words, we're either stuck in the past, lamenting on the past, or dreaming the future. And when we're dreaming the future, we're dreaming our present moment away. And we're rarely really truly present in this moment. And in spiritual methodologies, this state, the one most of us are stuck in, is called being asleep. We're stuck in a dream-like state, a subject to never-ending chatter of the unrelenting mind. In some methodologies, this state is called being dead. In the New Testament, there's a distinction between the dead and the quick. The dead being the one who is stuck in this unrelenting chatter and the quick is are those who have penetrated the true nature of reality the mind is like a dynamo you start it it'll go forever until we learn to control it with the reins of our willpower it is controlling us it says in the book of formation which we mentioned in the previous episodes of Kabbalistic Mystic as one of the main books of Kabbalah, Judaism, it says, Stop your heart from wandering, from uh, thinking, 
And if it runs away, come back to place. That is in one line basically describing the practice and the structure of meditation. Now, once we're in the state where the ego has dissolved, we are wiser. We are more illuminated. Under this state of consciousness, our desire has been purified. We no longer follow the desire of the ego, but instead follow the desire of the higher self. We're working towards self-realization. We're doing what we're supposed to do in the world without even knowing what it is, free from the need to know, which is really thinking about the future, right? We just show up. We're guided by intuition and intellect as a perfect balance of forces within our minds. We do not lose the personality. The personality is very important, Hebrew mysticism tells us. We cannot work our way in the world of duality without a sense of separateness. A personality is the lens. It's the speaker through which we spread our light in the world. It's what makes us infinitely unique. However, separateness is no longer a natural state of existence for us in that, in that reality. It is instead something we experience outside of what we know to be true and real, which is the unity of all, of all things, of all that exist. So the false sense of the self has been eliminated, and consequently our pride, jealousy, envy, and need for witnessing or validation all gone, and so is much of the suffering that comes with it. I know that this is very abstract and it's like, oh yeah, you know, some of you, uh, oh, I've experienced that. Or some will say, well, I haven't. And uh, it's very, very hard to understand what that feels like. But since the topic of this episode is what is enlightenment, what is awakening, I'm doing my best to describe that state and bringing you others who have been successful in describing it in the past. Now, we mentioned that in Hebrew mysticism, there are seven distinct stages of enlightenment. The complete and lasting ego dissolution is the second one. It's depicted by the letter Peh. And in tarot, the tower card, the taming and reconstruction of the mind in meditation, depicted by the letter Tzadi, which comes after Peh, which stands for occult meditation is the next stage, is the third stage of enlightenment. It's In tarot, this is the star card. So we have the tower card, and we have the star card. The, t- the tower being the ego dissolution, the star card being meditation, the transformation of the mind. The ego dissolution usually involves a tremendous amount of suffering, unfortunately, which serves as the catalyst for the change, to embody so much light, one has to know just as much darkness. It's the law of the universe. There are exceptions, of course. But as we said, everyone's journey is different. You might have suffered tremendously in previous lifetimes, previous incarnations. Some of us, you know, we, we just don't know what our journey represents because we only have visibility to this lifetime. But in general, the more pain, the more gain. The reason is simple. If we don't suffer, there is no incentive to change. Why would we change if everything is hunky-dory? As we mentioned, in tarot, the ego dissolution is depicted by the tower card. And if you look at the tower card, you can look at the show notes and you'll see a picture of it. It's showing a tower that has been struck by lightning. 
The tower represents the fake life we've built for ourselves. And the lightning is usually an event in our lives that shatters our ego. A divorce, a death of a loved one, losing our jobs. In the Raider Weight deck, the one I'm recommend, I recommend using as you listen to this podcast and the one um, I'm using when I'm putting these cards in the show notes, you can see that this is one of the only cards in the major arcana in which the figures are dressed. And that's to indicate that the ego personality, which we put around ourselves like a layer of clothing, is really not who we are. We're born naked and will return to the earth without nothing. The clothing is just a layer. The ego personality is just a layer that we put around ourselves as we grow into the people that we are. In our spiritual journey, we need not one, not two, but many, many lightning, like the lightning depicted in the tower card, to completely dissolve our ego. In other words, we're going through a mini version of the first few stages of enlightenment over and over and over, like an onion being peeled. Our ego is being peeled as well, layer after layer. met his teacher, Nimbab, he was not much of a believer. And a friend took him to meet Nimbab, saying, you, you got to meet this guy. And on the way, they stopped, and Ramdas looked at the stars, thinking about his mother. And the next day, they arrived to see Nimbab, who greeted Ramdas by saying, yesterday, when you stopped, you thought of your mother. Now, this story is just one of many describing superpowers, quote-unquote, possessed by various yogis and other spiritual sages. Some can see through the eyes of others, be in two places at once, levitate, uh, read people's thoughts. Remember, there's a story. Remember Uri Geller? He was a, an Israeli psychic, um, uh, very famous in America in the 80s, I believe. And he was on TV and he would bend spoons through the TV, have people hold spoons in their hands, and he would bend them through the TV in thousands and thousands of households or stop watches. It's described in the book that was written about him by a scientist who accompanied him for a period of a few years, that Uli would drive a car blindfolded seeing through the eyes of the person sitting next to him, telling the person, no, you got to keep looking at the road because I see what you see. There's documented stories of shamans in South Africa who perform psychic surgeries and heal people without a trace of evidence. The Buddha, we're told, performed quite a few miracles, although he was, quote, saying, I dislike, reject, and despise them. Because performing what we would call miracles infringes on one's free will to believe. Once you witness a miracle, you have to believe. It's now your new reality. So you are, in essence, deprived of your freedom to believe without witnessing one. So those who are really usually capable of bending reality, shall we say, controlling this illusory reality, 
are usually keeping it to themselves. At that point, they have no ego, no desire, no need to show others that they can do it. For those who believe in Jesus, he walked on water, he healed the blind, he created bread out of thin air. So we see that there is obviously a level of attainment that is beyond just the dissolution of the ego, the quieting of the mind, the disconnection from identification with matter. There is a state, a level of attainment that one becomes some kind of a superhuman with the ability to control the illusion, the illusory state of existence in this reality to some extent or another. What is that level of attainment? In Hebrew wisdom, this level of enlightenment is called reuniting with the Father. The Father, you see, is your higher self, which for all intended purposes is God. It's a timeless, bodiless version of you and every other incarnation of you that has ever been and ever will be. The ultimate goal of spiritual seeking, according to Hebrew wisdom, is to enable the higher self to use your physical vessel, your body, and manifest itself in the physical world. In the book of creation, the book of formation, it says, Vehashev yotzer al mekomo, and restore the creator to his place. This is done by raising your vibration so that the higher self can access your physical vessel. Now, what does it mean, raising the vibration? It is not an abstract term. It's a very specific, very accurate term that is referring to an actual energy within our body. Raising the vibration is done by raising the meeting point of two energies. The first one is the inner positive sexual energy that is spiraling downward. And the negative, universal energy, which is drawn from the earth and spiraling upward. In the east, this locus or meeting point of these two energies is called kundalini. Usually the meeting point is at the base of our spine. By purifying the energy centers in our body, we can raise this powerful energy all the way to the pineal gland, the indigo center, or as some know it, the sixth chakra. It's not an easy thing to do, and without the proper preparation, it'll simply kill you. Your body, as you have it constructed at the moment, is simply not built to withstand such energy, such voltage. Here is Sadhguru, a modern-day sage, talking about this phenomena. What is enlightenment? Whatever I say, you tend to misunderstand. Whatever I say, you're bound to misunderstand. But let me see how to create minimum amount of misunderstanding. This is the reason why most enlightened beings never spoke. Because the moment you speak, you're bound to be misunderstood. What enlightenment means for you would be, suppose you're here, you're here right now, you're in the body but you don't belong to the body. You have a mind but you don't belong to the mind. You have a family, you don't belong to the family. You're in the world, but you don't belong to the family, to the world. But at the same time, everything is a part of you. You're not in conflict with anything. You're, everything is a part of you, 
but you yourself don't belong to anything, how would it be? You cannot imagine, isn't it? So in terms of your experience, how would it be? Suppose you spent a lifetime without ever knowing what's fear, what's anger, what's jealousy, what's hatred, what's anxiety. You're blissful all the time, you're intoxicated all the time, at the same time you're fully alert. For most people, over over ninety percent of the people who reach that stage, the moment of enlightenment and moment of leaving the body are same. Once your energies reach such a peak, you can't hold on to the body, you'll drop the body anyway. So moment of enlightenment and moment of leaving the body are same for most people. Only somebody who knows the tricks of the body, who understands the mechanics of the body can hold on to it. Otherwise they have to employ something else to hold on to it. Because most people who attain have not gone into that kind of sadhana. They are only learning to drive the car, they are not learning how to build the car. So they cannot retain the body. That was Sadhguru, a modern day yogi, describing how you will have to depart your body, that is to die, if you were to be enlightened. That is, if you would raise the vibration of your body and embody so much energy to the point that your body cannot handle it. And I want to talk about this point for a minute because this is an important one to explain. There's a very strong distinction between the East and the West on this particular point. So here's the deal. The Kabbalistic mystic is really an occultist. The mystic, the occultist, and the alchemist are seeking the same thing, a reunion with the higher self. But they go about it in opposite ways. It's like two people going around the planet, one going east, one going west. They'll both meet at the same place, but their journeys will be very different. The mystic, and that's a predominant approach in the east, attempts to rise up to the divine which means that when he succeeds, he will drop the body because the vibration that he is trying to embody is not one that the body is capable of handling. And the body at that particular point is of no use to him anymore. He attained enlightenment. He attained his goal of rising up to the divine. He has entered through the gates of the heavens. What more does one need? That's the approach of the mystic. The occultist and the alchemist, on the other hand, are interested in bringing God, that is the higher self, to the physical realm. That is, the union with the higher self happens here on earth, in this physical reality, like the Buddha or Jesus. To perform this task, the occultist and alchemist are working to first transform their bodies they must reconstruct the physical vehicle, the physical vessel, replace it with one that is capable of handling the tremendous voltage of the sexual energy so it can rise and crystallize the pineal gland, rise through the various chakras, the various energy centers, the various uh, cosmic centers in the body depicted in Hebrew mysticism as the various planets, all the way to the pineal gland, all the way to the indigo center. The alchemist is transforming the body by means of chemistry. 
that is he or she is focused solely on the body. How do I physically change my body? What foods do I eat? What concoctions do I make in order to do this? The occultist is focused on both the body and the mind at the same time. He or she is working to deconstruct the ego personality and and to purify their desire, a process during which both the mind and the body are transformed. Hebrew wisdom explains how this is done in the letter Tzadi, which we mentioned earlier, the star in tarot, which symbolizes the transformation of the mind, and the letter Kuf, which follows the letter Tzadi, which looks like a profiled curve of the back of the head with a line ascending to it, that is, depicting the raised sexual energy going up to crystallize the pineal gland. That is the moon card in tarot, follows the star card. And that card represents the transformation of the body. Once the body was renewed, and that takes time and tremendous effort, the energy can be raised And the energy can only be raised when we have learned to focus our mind on one thing and one thing only. We're essentially clearing the path for that energy to rise naturally. It is said in Hebrew wisdom that meditation is very easy. It is the concentration effort to focus the thinking on one thing and one thing only so that the energy can rise up is the hard thing. So we have to do all these things at the same time. We have to purify our energy centers because if we don't purify them, then the energy is not going to be able to go unobstructed. We have to we purify them by deconstructing our ego personality. Through the process of deconstructing the ego personality, the, bo- the body physically is being transformed. And then we raise the energy and crystallize the pineal gland. The sand-like material in the pineal gland is then being crystallized. It's just like a powerful lightning creating glass when it's hitting sand. On the Tree of Life, this is depicted by the central line. And if you look at the Tree of Life, you see that it goes up not all the way to the top sphira, which is called Ketel, but only to the one below that, the sphira called Dat, which means in Hebrew, knowing. This sphere and the line going up to it is representing the divine emanation of all knowledge which is the crystal pineal gland and this is why the line the line goes only up to that particular point because that's the end of our journey now the successful crystallization of the pineal gland in physical form is considered to be the fifth stage of enlightenment according to the secret map of the hebrew letters That is, there's two other stages to follow because we mentioned that there's seven total stages. And there's only one man who some believe have completed them all. His name was Rabbi Yoshua ben Yosef, and later he was renamed by the church to Jesus. When it comes to the concept of who can get enlightened, I will tell you that the Book of Formation says... We mentioned this quote before. It translates to investigate the emanations of the tree of life, understand them, and bring the Creator back to its place. In other words, anybody can embark on this journey. This is the ultimate goal of the spiritual seeker. That's the basis of the entire science and spiritual methodology of alchemy, mysticism, Occultism, the idea is simple. It's beautiful, actually. It's that life is a story. It's a play. 
It's created by the creator of the universe. And we are the players. We're continuously evolving back towards unity. That is the game. That's the purpose of the game. And what the creator of the game really wants to do is to be a part of the story. And so it awaits to see who will manage to perform the unbelievably difficult task of paving the road for it to manifest in physical body for it, the creator, to go back to its place in the physical world. In tarot, that state is depicted as the sun child. It's shown in card 20, the sun, which follows the previous card that we said, uh, the moon. And it looks like a little child riding a horse. It corresponds to the letter resh in Hebrew, which is the letter following kuf, which symbolized the transformation of the body. That letter resh depicts by its shape, the way it's constructed, the solar energy descending down to the earth, the manifestation of the creator of God here on earth in our physical body. Heavy stuff, I know, for most of us and most likely all of us, maybe even irrelevant. We're stuck in the tedious process of dissolving our ego personality and understanding a bit more how to live a happy life. And I want to emphasize that the purpose of this podcast series is not to explore the tree of life as a map for enlightenment. It's instead to explore it as a mirror of the human psyche to allow us to understand ourselves better, our emotions, behavior patterns, our minds, But I did think, however, that it's important that we visit the topic of enlightenment at this point in time, at the beginning, just to have a view of the big picture, establish terminology, understand where Hebrew mysticism stands in relationship to the Eastern methodologies, which, as you can see, they line up pretty closely. That said, I have no doubt that there are listeners out there who are interested in placing themselves on the path to enlightenment. I have a friend here in Spokane, Washington, who told me that just a few weeks ago. He said, I am interested in enlightenment. I believe it's possible and I, you know, have the means to do nothing but focusing on that. Now, using the tree of life or any other methodology can help. But I will ask you this. If this is your purpose, I want to ask you, why do you want to become enlightened? What are you here to do? Ask yourself this question again and again and again. I can offer you the following unsolicited advice, and I'm paraphrasing the words of Joko Beck, author of Everyday Zen. Best forget about enlightenment. And the reason is simple. The road to enlightenment passes through self-actualization and service to others anyway. By positioning yourself towards a goal of illumination, you are clinging to a desire and by definition, veering off the path your higher self has planned for you. You're likely to push yourself hard. You're constantly judging your own behavior in an attempt to eliminate your shadow side and arriving at a lofty state of nirvana that you have in your mind in which you will experience unconditional love towards all beings. It's a pattern of behavior that can easily and quietly turn destructive and harsh. Illumination does not mean perfection. It means knowing each and every part of your being, both the shadow and the light, accepting each part fully and lovingly as the perfect being that you are. The best way to pursue the light is to pursue our true desire. Not the intellectual one, but the inner intuitive one, the one you might be afraid to entertain due to external circumstances. Follow that desire, 
without judgment, without the need to change anything, without the need to be enlightened, the rest will follow. to recommend a book. In the beginning of this episode, I spoke about how Eastern methodologies are not necessarily working for the Westerners. And I would like to emphasize that I do love yoga. I practice yoga on a regular basis, but I'm focusing on it as a science to open my body, um, some forms of meditation. But when it comes to my spiritual framework, I prefer the Hebrew wisdom. But I don't want to take away from the value of importance of the Eastern traditions and yoga in particular. All roads lead to Rome. And as seekers, I encourage you to dip in and out of the various methodologies which call you in this particular moment until you find one that works for you or until you find a particular balance of various methodologies. Who says that we have to limit ourselves to one? I personally believe that each and every spiritual system has something to offer to the world. None of them are perfect. Each one of them have, has mastered a particular piece. Maybe you are the person who goes to Buddhism to learn about desire, meditation. Maybe you go to Hinduism to learn about the body and how to open and clear your energy centers through the practice of yoga, use Ayurveda to heal yourself, practice the essence of Christianity to embody love towards all being, practice the essence of Islam to learn devotion and submission. Each spiritual system has something to teach us. And going back to yoga, I want to recommend a book many of you I'm sure heard of um, and already read, but if you haven't, I strongly recommend it. It's called Autobiography of a Yogi. It was written by Yogananda, and it would give you an idea of what it is to be on the path towards illumination and what it is like to be in the presence of illuminated people. It's a great book, easy read. The book described Yogananda's amazing childhood and how he became along uh, Vivekananda, one of the teachers who brought yoga to the West. The book is really a great introduction to the ancient science of yoga, uh, told through his life story. He describes numerous encounters with sages and experiences that you and I will call miracle. It's fun. It's an easy read. Can't recommend it enough. And I'm sure it's in your local library. There's also a link in the show notes if you want to purchase it. By purchasing it, by clicking on the link in the show notes, you'll also be supporting this show. That's it for today. We've concluded the third episode of Kabbalistic Mystic, and today we spoke about enlightenment. We've concluded that it's both a relative term, referring to our existing current state of consciousness, continuously expanding and changing as we embody more light, as well as a specifically defined term in Hebrew mysticism, one where we have transformed, 
our minds and our bodies to enable the higher self or our divine version to manifest in physical form. We spoke about awakening as a state in which we have stopped our mind from running the show, we're no longer identified with matter and became connected with the true nature of reality. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You heard music by Moksha. For a detailed list of all the books and quotes mentioned in this episode, you can check out the show notes as I mentioned in the beginning, and that's on www.kabbalisticmystic.com. I'm Ovadia Batat, your host from Spokane, Washington, wishing you health, happiness, and well-being. May you find love in every moment. <laughs>